Thank you. We'll turn now to our scripture reading for this morning. This comes from 1 Kings 4. You can find 1 Kings 4 on page 525 in the Bibles ahead of you in the pews. Last week in our time in 1 Kings 3, we looked at Solomon's request for wisdom of the Lord. So now we continue in chapter 4 with part of God's answer to that request. 1 Kings 4, before we read God's Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we trust in the power of Your Word. From in the beginning to behold, I am coming soon. And so we pray that as we are here in 1 Kings 4, that you would speak powerfully to us about yourself, about us before you. You would impress upon us the glory of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings chapter 4. So King Solomon ruled over all Israel, and these were his chief officials. Azariah, son of Zadok the priest, Elahoreph and Ahijah, sons of Shishah, secretaries, Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, recorder, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, commander-in-chief, Zadok and Abiathar, priests, Azariah, son of Nathan, in charge of the district officers, Zabud, son of Nathan, a priest and personal advisor to the king, Ahishar, in charge of the palace, Adoniram, son of Abda, in charge of forced labor. Solomon also had twelve district governors over all Israel who supplied provisions for the king and the royal household. Each one had to provide supplies for one month in the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Makaz, Sha'albim, Beth-Shemesh, and Elan-Bathanan. Ben-Hesed in Aruba, Succo, and all the land in Hefer were his. Ben-Abinadab in Napheth-Dor, he was married to Tephath, daughter of Solomon. Ba'ana, son of Ahilud, in Ta'anak, and Megiddo, and in all of Bethshan, next to Zarethan, below Jezreel, from Bethshan to Abel-Mahola, across to Jachmim. Ben-Geber in Ramoth-Gilead, the settlements of Jer, son of Manasseh in Gilead, were his, as well as the district of Argob in Bethshan and its sixty large-walled cities with bronze gate bars. Ahinadab, son of Edo in Mahanaim, Ahimaz in Naphtali, the, he married the Basemath, daughter of Solomon, Ba'ana, son of Hushai in Asher and Elah, Jehoshaphat, son of Perua in Issachar, Shimei, son of Elah in Benjamin, Geber, son of Uri in Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor over the district. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And they ate, they drank, and they were happy. And King Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, twenty of pasture-fed cattle, and a hundred sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tifsah to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had four thousand stalls for chariot horses and twelve thousand horses. The district governors, each in his month, supplied provisions for King Solomon. 
and all who came to the king's table. They saw to it that nothing was lacking. They also brought to the proper place their quotas of barley and straw for the chariot horses and the other horses. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Last week, we we essentially skipped over the sordid story of the, the two arguing prostitutes who waged rhetorical war against each other over whose child was dead and whose child was very much alive. And in that account, we saw that Solomon was gifted by God with the kind of quick-witted decision-making that is necessary for a king to do justice on a micro-scale. And today we move into chapter 4 and we see that God is also generous to give Solomon the kind of wisdom that is necessary to do justice and, and to lead God's people wisely on a macro level. And we really can read chapters 3 and 4 as one organic unit. And the, the organic unit teaches a very simple story that God invited Solomon to come to him and ask for whatever he wants Solomon comes to God and asks for wisdom. God promises that he's going to give Solomon the wisdom he asked for. And now we see in the second half of chapter 3 and this chapter 4 that God is more than generous in providing for Solomon exactly what he had promised to give to Solomon in response to his prayer. And this passage is, is pretty easily broken up into three sections. The first of these sections is in verses 1 to 19. And these verses 1 to 19 give us what seems to be a, a rather tedious list of names and geographic areas. And since very few of us are, are fluent in the geography of the promised land, particularly the geography of the promised land in antiquity, it can be hard for us to make sense of all these different regions and the governors of different districts and what this means. And so I would recommend, if you're interested in making more sense of this, you can turn to the back of a good study Bible and look at some maps, or it's worth your money to buy the ESV Study Bible Atlas, which has all these maps in much more detail. But rather than turning this into a geography lecture, which some of you would find very interesting, others of you would find unbearably dull, we should focus on the main point. And the main point is that God gave Solomon wisdom. Now how do we get there from this list. How do we get to God's generous provision of wisdom to Solomon from a list of officials and names and governors and districts? It's really quite simple. Solomon is king. And Solomon is king of a great, expansive empire. And being the king of such a great kingdom requires administration, requires oversight. And administration and oversight require wisdom. 
God has made Solomon king and Solomon here in appointing these various men to these various positions demonstrates that he is wise beyond his years and he is able with skill to be able to oversee and to administer his kingdom. And we don't need, we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty details of Solomon's administration to gather the big point here. Because this is, again, a tedious list. And wisdom is often tedious. Sometimes wisdom is the glitz and glamour of a courtroom scene and two mothers who are arguing over whose child is living and whose is dead and the the sharp wit of a sword and a wise decision. Sometimes wisdom is glitz and glamour, but most of the time wisdom is being faithful in the regular, everyday, ordinary, mundane things of life. Wisdom pays attention to detail. Wisdom brings order. Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14.40 that all things should be done decently and in order. That a wise body brings order, not chaos. That's why we have things like the book of church order. The book of church order seems, just like geography to many of us, to be unbearably dull. Yet, it gives order. It helps us to do things right. It helps us to be on the same page. And so we also have things like offices. We have elders and deacons. Elders to oversee and deacons to serve. Not doing the same things, but working together to bring order and blessing to the people of God. It's also why in our search for a church planter, we're taking our time looking for a man who has gifts not only in preaching and evangelism, but also in administration and leadership. Because a man with that kind of wisdom gives us the best opportunity to serve a new community well. But wisdom is not only needed for leading the people of God as a church or as a nation. Wisdom is necessary for each of God's people in your ordinary lives, even if it doesn't feel like your ordinary everyday life requires all that much wisdom at all. Sometimes our lives seem tedious. They seem regular. They seem ordinary. I'm a week early, so you can forgive me, but I I think of mothers. Next week is Mother's Day. It's been on my mind a little bit. Mother's life oftentimes can be characterized as cleaning up other people's messes. You wake up in the morning, you make a meal, you do the dishes, you clean a bathroom, you put things away, you clean up the toys, you change clothes. If you have twins, you change a lot of diapers. You make a meal, you do the dishes, you vacuum, you read a children's story Bible book, You make a meal, you do the dishes, you do the laundry, you put the kids to bed, you go to bed, you wake up the next day, and you do it all over again. And in some sense, it seems mundane, repetitive. Perhaps you even wonder if it's worth it. It seems tedious, but it is worth it. Wisdom is often tedious. You make meals for children, because God's little gifts of life need to eat. You do the dishes, because people need clean utensils to eat off of. 
You read Bible stories again and again and again and again to children because God's little gifts of life need to know the way to eternal life. You do the small things, and you do them again and again and again, even though they never seem to make a big difference, because you have confidence that small things done faithfully over a large time has great blessing for God and for His people. Or maybe you're reading through the Bible in a year. And as you read through the Bible in a year, it feels tedious. You get bogged down in lists like this, or in the genealogies, or books like Leviticus, or the minor prophets that seem on the surface to be impossible to understand. But yet, you keep going because you're convinced, because God's Word has convinced you that all of Scripture, every word of it, is beneficial to you. That's wisdom. Wisdom is being faithful and studying God's Word. Because you know that through it, God blesses His people. Wisdom is not always glitz and glamour. It is most often regular, ordinary, perpetual faithfulness. Some of the names in this list we've seen before, men like Zadok and Benaiah, others we'll see in the future. We'll leave them in the past and in the future respectively, and we'll move into the second part of our passage for this morning, verses 20 to 28. And in these verses, we see that wisdom, whether it's the glitzy, glamorous kind or whether it's the regular, ordinary, mundane kind, all wisdom bears good Solomon's wisdom was no different. Solomon's wisdom bears very good fruit for the people in his kingdom. And the first fruit that we see from Solomon's wisdom is the fruit of prosperity. In the time of Solomon's reign, the people of Israel and Judah eat and they drink and they are happy. They live in a land with abundant gardens. They live in a lush land. Their crops grow. Their animals flourish. Their, their children grow up in abundance. Nobody's hungry. People are content. Solomon's government requires an incredible amount of resources to come into it. And the people are able to provide those resources because God has been faithful in providing them above and beyond what they need. And that's exactly as God had promised Back in De- uh, Deuteronomy 28, verses 2 through 5, God said this, All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. Under the, under the rule of a wise king, And in the covenant faithfulness which David, through all of its faults, yet had brought the people of God into, under the rule of this wise king and in covenant faithfulness, God's people are blessed precisely as God had promised to bless them if they would obey Him. But then we see the next fruit of this wisdom is the fruit of peace. That all throughout Solomon's life, he had peace on every side. And this too is promised in Deuteronomy 28, verse 10 this time says, Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. If a nation fears another nation, the fearing nation does not attack the nation it fears, therefore it has peace. And during the time of Solomon's reign, the other kings and the other kingdoms around him feared him exactly as God had promised, and because of that, Solomon reigns over an incredibly peaceful time. 
So Solomon's empire is allowed to grow, and we see that in the, the third thing that we see as a blessing of Solomon's wisdom is kingdom expansion. Solomon doesn't fight great wars like David his father had, and yet even so, during Solomon's time, Solomon's kingdom expands even beyond the borders of David's kingdom. It expands all the way in the south to Egypt and all the way in the north to the Euphrates River. Solomon's kingdom is a regional superpower in its day. And all the nations are afraid of Solomon's kingdom, even though Solomon is not a king of war. And in, in all of these things, in the, the prosperity and in the peace and in the expansion of the kingdom, the narrator of First Kings, of, of the book of Kings, means to get us to the point where he says, look, isn't this incredible? Look at the prosperity. Look at the peace. Look at the blessing." Look at the kingdom. Look how glorious all of this is. And look at how God answered the simple, humble prayer of His King and gave Him abundantly more than He had even dared ask. Look at the greatness of God's generosity. And do we dare ourselves consider that God has changed? But God never changes. And God still answers with power and abundance the prayers offered to Him humbly and simply by His people. Then the author raises just a yellow flag, just a small one. doesn't dwell on it for long, just mentions it in passing. But it's a yellow flag, and the yellow flag comes to us because the author notes that Solomon accumulates many horses. This is something explicitly forbidden the kings in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. We'll come back to that in future chapters, Lord willing. We'll pass by it for now as the author passes by it for now. But we're meant to see in this, this middle section more than just Solomon's greatness. In fact, Solomon's greatness isn't even the main point of the passage. We're meant to see, first and foremost, and above everything else, God's greatness and God's covenant faithfulness. Because as we look through these verses, we see that God keeps His promises, some promises made a generation ago and some promises made over a thousand years ago. God is keeping His promises at a high point here in the time of Solomon's reign and rule. And we, we note again, like we noted last week, that that the author says the people of Israel and Judah were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And this again is language lifted right out of Genesis 22:17, where the Lord says to Abram, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. That promise was over a thousand years old. But here in the time of Solomon, God has actively kept His promise. We also see that the geographic boundaries of Israel are given. That Israel spans all the way from Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River in the north. And the Lord had promised this to Abraham in Genesis 15. The Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land. From the wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Again, over a thousand years later, in the time of Solomon, God is actively keeping His promise. But then we note as well that Solomon has peace. 
And this is exactly what God had promised his father David. In 2 Samuel 7, we read, God says, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. God again is faithful to keep his promise. This time, not a thousand years later, this time just about 30 years later, one generation later. But in all of this, the point is very clear. God always keeps his word. Whether God takes just a little while to keep his word, Solomon asks for wisdom, God promises it, Solomon receives it immediately. Whether it happens in a few years like God promises David and it happens with Solomon. Whether it takes millennia like the promises made to Abraham of, of innumerable descendants and a land that stretches all the way from Egypt to the Euphrates River. Whatever God, <coughs> excuse me, whenever God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. And that's one of the main points of the book of Kings. We can always trust God's Word. If we make a mistake, we make a mistake if we stop looking for the fulfillment of these covenant promises with Solomon. Because Solomon is not the end-all, be-all of God's plan to bless His people. It's not until we come to Jesus that we see the perfect fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and David. And we see that in Jesus, the great King of Kings, God's promise to give Abraham innumerable descendants and a great kingdom and the promise to David to give him peace are fulfilled. And we see this, all three of these promises fulfilled as we look at Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. God's people under the reign of Jesus, the King of Kings. John writes this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. That's promise one. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, that's promise too. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches as a sign of peace, promise three, in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In Christ, all the promises find their yes and amen and are fulfilled to perfection. The prophet Micah, the prophet Micah recognized, living after the time of Solomon, that Solomon was not the perfect peace bringer that God had promised. And so he writes, using language very similar to the language here, in Micah 4.4, and says, Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. But Micah sees a time when there's perfect peace, and when God's people are perfectly provided for. And Micah says that time comes at the end, when the Christ comes. And the Christ comes, and we read in the next to last chapter of the Scriptures, Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That with Christ comes perfect prosperity. With Christ comes perfect peace. As we look further and further into the life of Solomon, we're going to find Solomon to be a thrilling and confusing and ultimately unsatisfying man. But as we look more and more and further into the person of Jesus, we find him to be thrilling and perfectly satisfying because he is God's perfect king. Then we see in these final verses verses 29 to 34, that true wisdom is incredibly expansive. 
that it covers a wide variety of topics. And we, we read through this list and we, we read about all the things he did, all the songs he sung, all the things that he wrote, and all the plant life, from the largest trees to the smallest. And I, I don't think the author of Kings intends for us to dive in and say, well, what was the wisdom about the hyssop? And what was the wisdom about the cedar? He means for us to look at the big picture and see just how broad and wide and great Solomon's wisdom is. That Solomon covers everything from the smallest to the greatest in his wisdom. That vast and expansive and great and glorious is the wisdom which God has given to Solomon. Some of you know that I, know that I have a scholar crush on Ralph Davis. And his commentary on these verses is particularly helpful. He says the sheer extent of Solomon's wisdom, the range of his interests, is even more impressive than the quantity of his proverbs and songs. He speaks of the moral and the material and moves between living and lyrics. He appreciates the stately yet notices the trivial. His interests include both what is in the barn and what is in the lake what graces the skies, and what slithers across the kitchen floor. Since God has left the fingerprints of His wisdom everywhere, since there is no place where God does not furnish us with raw materials for godly thinking, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder His works, both the majestic and the mundane. And that's the point here. The point is not so much about Solomon's wisdom and the greatness of Solomon. Because we see the point here is about the source of Solomon's wisdom and the subject of Solomon's wisdom. In verse 29, we read very plainly, God gave Solomon wisdom. The source of Solomon's wisdom is not Solomon. The source of Solomon's wisdom is God. And as the fount is greater than the recipient, so God is greater than Solomon. We could call Solomon's wisdom, perhaps more accurately, the wisdom that God loaned to Solomon for a time. Now what does Solomon use this great wisdom to contemplate? He contemplates the things which God has made. That is, that God is both the source and the subject of Solomon's wisdom. That all of Solomon's wisdom comes from God, and all of Solomon's wisdom goes to God. That's why Solomon's wisdom is so great. Because it is from beginning to end about God. And our lives and our wisdom will be great if they are from beginning, from source, to subject and end about God. Paul finishes for us this morning in Romans eleven thirty six, speaking about the source and subject of all things. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Indeed. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are the giver of all good gifts. You are the one who gave Solomon wisdom. And even beyond that, you gave him things to study and to contemplate with that wisdom. And as great as Solomon's wisdom was, we recognize that in Jesus, wisdom becomes incarnate. That Jesus is the source of wisdom and he is the perfect object for all wisdom to contemplate. 
that those who are wise fear him. Those who are wise love him. Those who are wise come to him in faith. That he is the king greater than Solomon. With a kingdom which is far greater than Solomon's kingdom. That he is the one who brings his people in the end into perfect prosperity. He is the one who gives peace as the prince of peace. And he is the one who saves out of sin an innumerable number of people from every tribe and tongue. And so we pray that you would fix our hearts, our minds upon him. You would give us the wisdom required to live for him and to live to him. That as Paul says, all things come from you, all things come through Christ. And all things are for him. So we pray that you would receive glory forever and ever. And that you would receive it forever and ever from our mouths and from our hearts. We pray that you, the most wise king, Lord Jesus, would receive our thanks. We pray in your name. Amen.